welcome to Tusk Talk, episode number nine. We'll be going over Enchantress today. And today we have on Morgan Cooper, also known as Handlebars. Hello, magicians. And we'll also have on Mega Deuce, also known as Josh Hand, from Team Tusk as well. Hey guys, how's it going? We're doing great. So let's talk about the deck. What is it? Enchantress is a combo deck, and it typically people build the deck with with something like one to three win conditions, and it's it it combos out by playing enchantment. The deck's namesake is a card, uh, Argothian Enchantress, creature human druid Shroud. She's a zero one, and she says whenever you cast an enchantment spell, draw a card. And so you play that card, and generally uh, Enchantress's Presence, which is an enchantment that has the same text. Whenever you cast an enchantment spell, draw a card. So you play those cards, you play a bunch of enchantments, you draw a bunch of cards, and you find some way to defeat your opponent with all of that. Yeah, um, like Morgan said, it's kind of like a combo deck. You play it at like a... Combo prison almost. It's got some prison elements to it, depending on how you build it. But you can definitely go a couple different ways with it. The main thing is the enchantress effects, where with the Argothian and the presence. And with recent additions of from Besieged, you have Green Sun for enchantress. So you have a very consistent turn two enchantress to really start get going. And you can start on turn three, just drawing a ton of cards and just laying out the board, so your opponent can't really catch up. What are some of the ways that the deck wins? Like, it seems to just cast a lot of enchantments. <laughs> yeah. So and you, you have to win eventually, some way. Sigil of the Empty Throne is, is one common way, which lets you make uh, boatloads of angels. A lot of people will play the Rest in Peace Helm of Obedience combo. That's, that's a common thing that people do. Words of War is, is also one, which is an enchantment. Uh, it's red, and you can pay one mana. It says the next time you would draw a card this turn, Words of War deals two damage to target creature or player instead. So you, you know, make a whole bunch of draw triggers, and you make a million mana, and you burn your opponent in the face. Um, there's also Words of Wilding, I believe, which is the green one that makes bears. So you could make a lot of bears and attack your opponent. There's, uh, I happen to really like playing a Doomwake Giant in the deck. He is like another way to control the board, and uh, you can kill your opponent with him. Nothing is quite more satisfying than, than killing a Tarmogoyf with uh, Doomwake Giant triggers. <laughs> what, what do you think, Josh? What, are, what, are, what else am I missing as far as ways that people win with Enchantress? I like Emrakul as, like, a singleton win condition as well. It's like, you know, all the other ones are counterable, so there's times that maybe a Miracles deck or some other blue control deck can kind of just let you resolve enchantments that don't do anything against them and then just simply counter your two or three win conditions because, like you said, you run so few. But Emrakul makes it so that if they do let you develop your board, you can just make 15 mana off of a Sanctum and cast it and kill them with it. Also, if you have Caracas, you can kind of go infinite, so... Rip Helm is probably one of my favorites because it's just a pretty fast win. Both pieces can be tutored up with, like, an Enlightened Tutor, which is pretty solid in the deck sometimes. And like you said, Doomwake is great for controlling the board because he's another element of a way for you to control the game, but he also just beats for four. And a 4-6 is really hard to combat a lot of times, especially when you're getting his minus one, minus one trigger multiple times in a turn. Yeah, I, um... That blocks Reality Smasher. It does. Uh, 
is a Sorry. force. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, turning my. I have a million text messages coming in right now. I, and I, for for that reason, what what you were mentioning with uh, Emrakul, I I definitely uh, I always pack one in the sideboard for exactly those those reasons. A, a smart a player who understands what to counter when playing against Enchantress will let things uh, let a lot of things resolve that that may be bad for them in the short term, and just hold up counter magic. <laughs> Or uh, the Enchantress effects because those are what really matter. Right. Either that, if they have a, a quick threat and can beat you quickly, or they just hold out for your one or two win conditions and just just counter those. Like those are the the two ways to sort of make Enchantress stumble. Like you mentioned, Emrakul is is uncounterable. I personally am am not a fan of the the rest in peace uh, Helm combo. Just because Helm of Obedience doesn't do anything uh, by itself, and I really dislike playing cards that don't do anything by themselves. Even Sigil, the deck works, you generate a lot of mana real quickly, Uh, so even with a Sigil, which doesn't do anything by itself, you typically can play that and something else at the same turn, Um, you know, I... I think there's a valid argument to to playing the the rip helm combo. Rip definitely, you know, will randomly just hose some decks. It's it's pretty good in legacy in general. I just personally choose to not play it. You know, I, I think both schools of thought are valid. Yeah, the rip is nice. I, I like rip helm more in metas that are already pretty weak to graveyard hate, and rest in peace is probably the best graveyard hate in yeah. legacy because it. You know, nukes the yard when it comes in and keeps it from coming in later on. So it's it's especially powerful when in game one it's just a really good hate card, even if you don't have the helm. It it is kind of clunky with Rip Helm because Helm doesn't really do anything most of the time. And same with Emrakul, not like running non enchantment based wind conditions can get awkward at times if you have a draw where you have a couple enchantresses but then you don't have an enchantment to follow up. Those are those are just my preferred win conditions, but I, I have toyed with the sigil, and the sigil is nice because sometimes you just, even without an enchantress effect, you can just put a sigil on the board and play two wild growths and make two four fours, and your opponent can't beat it. Kind of like how miracles will just dump two angels on the field, and it's just sometimes you just win the game simply by doing that. So Do you guys want to go over some of your backgrounds with the deck? Uh, sure. See, I've played the deck about maybe a little over a year now, and I usually play like a green-white version. I've been splashing black recently for stuff like E-Plague in the sideboard and Doomwake Giant in the main. I got ninth at a Classic, Star City Classic, on Breakers. That was rough, but kind of nice at the same time, because I didn't really know if Enchantress was a great deck at the time, and when I did so well with it, I figured out how powerful it can be in a meta that's not really prepared for it, and Pretty consistently, I do 3-1 at least in the local events. It's been a while since I played it in the local, so I'm going to start playing it again soon. Hopefully it can keep up. How about you, Morgan? Yeah, um, I guess I have about a similar experience with the deck. I picked it up a little over a year ago, played it for a while, haven't played it much lately, but I did take uh, first place in Durham, North Carolina at Atomic Empire Eternal Weekend 8 a year ago, which is the only tournament that I've ever won. So, <laughs> don't worry, I've got zero on my resume, so it's fine. Yeah, like Josh mentioned, like it's great in a meta where nobody's prepared for it. 
it's definitely not a commonly played deck. If you can pilot the deck well, you will catch a lot of people off guard who don't understand how to fight against it. I've definitely baited people into countering the wrong spell or had somebody realize that I'm sitting across the table when somebody has no idea what's going on. And, you know, that that can be fun in a tournament setting, at least if you're a sick motherfucker like myself. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not an easy deck to just pick up, though, at least for those of us with average human intelligence. What would you say... Uh or some of the keys to playing it well and maximizing its value and stuff? So the deck creates like a billion triggers. So you want to make sure you're hitting them all. So one way to do that, or what I typically do, is every time I play a spell, I am saying out loud, trigger, I'm sort of approaching it as like an, an old procedural way to do it. And I'm saying trigger, and I'm pointing to every card on my board that has a triggered effect, of, of which there are many. You know, when you're, when you're playing, when you have Argothian Enchantress and Enchantress's presence in play, those trigger both upon a spell being cast, and then I like playing an Eidolon of Blossoms as well, just because with that and Green Sun Zenith, I get the number of Enchantress effects in the deck up to, up to a total of 12, basically. And it's like, you know, it's, it's another thing that I can tutor up with Green Sun Zenith, etc., etc. But that triggers, it has a, a very similar effect to the Argothian Enchantress, but because of the way the card's worded, it triggers upon the spell resolving. So yeah. you get in a situation where you're announcing triggers when the spell is cast, drawing cards, the spell is resolving, and then you have another trigger that's resolving. Likewise, Doomwake Giant's triggers happen when the spell resolves. So it can get confusing. It also, if you're stacking draws with Sterling Grove, which is an enchantment, it's, it's green-white. It says, I'm, I'm reading the old card. It says, all other enchantments you control can't be the target of spells or abilities. Uh, it gives them Shroud. I'm, I'm not bothering to look up on Gatherer. But then it has an ability that says, one, sacrifice Sterling Grove, colon. Search your library for an enchantment card and reveal that card. Shuffle your library, then put the card on top of it. So I find that a lot of times you have a Sterling Grove in play to protect all of your enchantment spells, and you might be playing another one and then sacrificing one to tutor something and then like casting another enchantment spell to get a draw trigger to draw that card that you really that you tutored up. So you can get into situations where you're having to stack the triggers carefully. It can just get a little messy. And the deck also makes a ton of mana and is is often um, a three-color deck. It's almost it's always going to be green. And then the other colors that people will typically play are white. I like playing black. People also play red or blue. But so you've got lands that are making different colors of mana and Sarah's Sanctum, which can make a ridiculous amount of mana in the deck. So I find often that you are tapping a land with a Utopia Sprawl on it to generate more than one mana, spending only one of those mana on a relevant spell, and then tapping Sarah's Sanctum and making a bunch of mana, playing another Sarah's Sanctum in the same turn. So you've got like all this mana floating and it's all different colors. So what I like to do is use some of the 20-sided dice 
that are color coded to match mana, oh, yeah. and and I will <sighs> use those to represent how much mana that I have floating in my pool, and being very careful to point out my triggers to my opponent and resolve them in the correct order. And that can be a little daunting unless you've done it a few times. Like it gets real confusing real quick, and you're trying to keep track of all this. And like remember, opponent has a clock that's going to kill you in two to three turns, so. You need to make sure to get this one card to lock them out, or you can win next turn if you get this other card. So, you know, it's just a lot to think about. It's it's not like play your Delver, days your spell. So there's, yeah. there's a lot more to, to think about. It takes a lot to get going. When I first picked up the deck, Sean said something to me that really stuck, and he's like, it's a fun little puzzle to figure out. It really is. If, you, if you're the kind of person that likes figuring out a little puzzle, I, I recommend that you, you try it. It's a fun little puzzle. Yeah, yeah. The, the math of like growth effects plus sanctum, you can make a ton of mana, and a lot of people, if they aren't experienced with it, have troubles. I was playing against a guy at, uh, the first time I played it at a quarterly, and the guy actually at one point just called the judge over so he could make sure that I was counting my math right. Which, I mean, I was counting my math right. He just didn't understand it all. So he was like, Judge, right. is this the right amount of mana he's making? And, like, it's it's just a lot of things going on with it, especially, like, for the builds that play Exploration. I know a lot don't, but I really like the card, and that card can make you go nuts in a turn. I do, I do too. I, I like Exploration for a, for a couple of different reasons. One, like, as you mentioned, it, it can make you go nuts. And two, I like stacking a lot of uh, one-mana plays in the deck because it can set you up to play an enchantress and another spell on turn two get the party started you know yeah, it's it, another way to have three man on turn two which is like the key because green sun plus presence are both three mana essentially so it, you just really want to have that in turn two Exactly. So you're, you're doing that either by playing an additional land or, um, you know, it also is good for your sanctum. That's another thing, another reason to, in my opinion, cram a bunch of one mana spells in the deck because you're always mana neutral on those if you have a sanctum in play. You can, and especially if you're drawing cards, it's just like, I'm just making my board bigger. I'm, I'm going to be mana neutral after all of this, uh, albeit in maybe a different color. But it, it lets you have some pretty busted turns. And uh, the, the other thing to, to remember before we get away from it is Miri's Guile is a commonly played card in the one mana slot. And Miri's Guile is it's kind of like half a Sylvan Library. If you're not familiar with the card, it's green for an enchantment. It says, during your upkeep, you may look at the top three cards of your library and put them back in any order. So you don't get to draw any additional cards, but you get to, you know, stack the top three cards of your deck. If you are playing with fetch lands, which you should be doing, you can look with your cards and then before your draw step, fetch to look at something else. Or you can stack multiple Muri's Guile triggers and, and fetch between those triggers resolving. So you can sort of like have multiple top activations that way. It's another one-mana spell to sort of get things going. And in my opinion, I think for that deck, it's better to have the one-mana effect than additional guaranteed card draw of Sylvan Library. The one-mana is really nice, and uh, like you said, the fetch lands, if you have multiple guiles out, that's like one of those key things that I'm sure a lot of newer people to the deck would probably miss that I think is key to just maximizing your, you know, best draws you can get and such. 
It really yeah. helps to separate, like, getting the right card on time, because it's a deck that doesn't block, because your dudes are O1s and they're important to the deck, so you just, having an extra turn is really big a lot of the time. To, it's the difference between locking somebody out with, like, a solitary confinement or something and not. Totally. Uh, many legacy decks, you you need to be sort of thinking a few turns ahead and figuring out, okay, like, what's my path to victory here? What do I need to do to ensure that I live long enough and to, to beat my opponent? And I just find that, A, you got to stick an Enchantress effect, and B, you got to draw cards to do that. So the more one-mana spells that I have that I can draw cards off of, the better that works out. Yeah, a lot of times it's not wrong to just, when you're constructing the deck, just look at all your cards and say, this card, is it worth past casting this card? Just a draw card half the time. Yeah. Because that's, that's like um, with Banishing Light versus O-Ring. Sometimes you just need to cast it onto an empty board to get an extra draw trigger or two, and if you have an O-Ring, you have to exile one of your own things, whereas Banishing Light you don't. So. Right. Yeah, so if anybody you know, doesn't understand the way that works, uh, the the wording on the, the cards of Banishing Light and Oblivion Ring is like, Banishing Light will only let you target something that your opponent has, so you, you can cast it onto an empty board and not do anything. With Oblivion Ring, when it comes into play, you have to target a permanent. So if your opponent doesn't have any permanents in play, you are going to have to target something of yourselves something that you own. Likewise, you cannot target one of your own permanents with uh, Banishing Light. Right. What else? Yeah, so, Verdurn Enchantress, Beta Unlimited, doesn't see any play, any particular reason? Uh, it does not have Shroud. Fair. It is a sweet card, but I guess even if you, like, there, I guess there's an argument to maybe wanting the fifth Enchantress effect, but at this point I think Eidolon's probably replaced it. It's a it's one more mana, but it comes in and draws a card without even needing another trigger, and right. it's yeah. two two, which is also not irrelevant. So how does this deck hold up against Eldrazi? That's does a good it, question. Does it does it change up? Do you do you come with new technology? That is a good question. I haven't played the deck in a while, so I'm I'm not sure exactly how that matchup works out. I'm inclined to think that. Elephant Grass is probably marginally helpful, if at all, just because they play so many soul lands that they can probably, and big guys that they can probably, you know, fight through an Elephant Grass. I think the card you're probably looking for is Moat. Moat is good. You know, they play Chalice, and Chalice in a deck against a deck full of one drops is pretty rough. So if they have like a really good draw of turn one, say Chalice, turn two, Thought Not Seer, taking like your only Enchantress effect. I mean, I guess that's the nut draw for the deck, and it beats most decks just doing that anyway, but it's really yeah. tough to beat. Um, Chalice is problematic at times, especially if you don't have, like, a Banishing Light in the main. Yeah, Humility is a card that the deck definitely can run that's pretty decent against Eldrazi. And I run uh, the Sphere of Safety, and they do make a lot of mana, but you make a lot of enchantments, so... Yeah. Sometimes you can just hard lock them with a sphere of safety and also um, solitary confinement. If you can get solitary going, they can't actually ever remove it. So yeah. it should be fine usually. I think it's I think it's in the favor of the enchantress player, though probably not by much. It it's very draw dependent on them, I think. Right. I think they don't have answers to a lot of your enchantments, but Chalice is really tough sometimes to beat. It's like sometimes they just get the nut and no matter what deck you were playing, you really probably weren't gonna win, so that's just how the deck goes, though. 
Yeah, so I'm looking at Mr. Thomas Parker's build of Enchantress, who took fourth place at a Star City Games IQ on July 31st. And he has a bit of a, uh, a toolbox build. He is playing an Enlightened Tutor. His uh, win conditions appear to be he's playing Rip Helm combo. Um, he's also playing a Words of War uh, and a Sigil of the Empty Throne. So he has, he has three ways that he can win. And then he has, like, several one-of enchantments. He's yeah, playing, his build's interesting. Yeah, he's, he's playing one City of Solitude main, one Humility main, which helps with Eldrazi, one Moat main. He's also playing one Miri's Guile and one Oblivion Ring. I guess the argument being that the second and third or even fourth Miri's Guile help you less. He's playing one Ruined Halo. His win conditions is playing one Sigil, one Words of War, one Helm of Obedience. I don't know if you noticed this, uh, but he's actually not running any green suns, so he has mm -hmm. a, a pretty limited number of enchantress effects, which I guess his deck seems to be more prison-based, so he just tries to set up a lock, then kill you, I guess. I'm personally not a fan of having less enchantress effects. Yeah, so the deck uh, doesn't benefit from Brainstorm, so I'm of the opinion that if I just cram a bunch of things that let me draw a ridiculous amount of cards, I'll eventually find a way to kill you. But if you have have less of those, you're depending even more on your ability to draw well. Yeah, a lot a lot more just luck than you know building the deck to perform. Josh, what are your thoughts on sphere of safety versus moat? I actually kind of like the sphere. I mean, I don't own a moat personally, but I do like the sphere because it stops flyers. Like putting a sphere in against sneak and show with a few enchantments on board can just be game over. You can just put that in off their show-and-tell. They probably don't have the mana to activate an attack or pay for an attack. And then next turn, you dump a few enchantments on board, and they need to make, like, six, seven mana to attack with anything. And it's just real tough. That and stopping Delvers. And I kind of like it just because against the decks that try to attack you, it's basically a hard lock. Nobody really has removal for it. Like, Decay doesn't hit it, so it may as well be... May as well be like a solitary confinement against a lot of decks, but it doesn't actually need a draw spell or a draw engine going to keep it going. Yeah. So I really like the card. Let's say I were a, someone picking up Enchantress for the first time, and I just felt like Moat was too expensive to invest in. Would I feel like I was underprepared with Sphere of Safety? Certainly not. I think it's, like I said, I personally like the card maybe even better than Moat. And I think also Humility as a budget option to Moat is pretty good, and it's actually better in a lot of situations, too. Like, Moat isn't strictly better than the other two. They all have their own merit, and Humility is really good against Elves, which can be a kind of a tough matchup, because mm -hmm. they have Rexage, but Humility really shuts them down. So, I could see having that over a Moat, definitely, and I think even Sphere is fine. Uh, I don't know, did you run a Moat, or did you run a Sphere when you played it at the Atomic Empire event? So, I've sort of tested both, and found that I, I was just really happy sort of leaning on the Doomwake Giants, because I can still tutor for them with, with Sterling Groves. I mean, I think it's it's one of those things where you can you can certainly find you know, a situation where a Moat is going to be better than Sphere of Safety, but I I agree with you. I think even with the extra mana cost, uh, Sphere of Safety is actually a better card, generally speaking, in the deck. Yeah, like you said, it's one extra mana, but Moat being double white, a lot of the time you're probably casting it off of a Sanctum anyway, and if you have a Sanctum, you probably have a good deal of mana. 
So one one extra mana is usually not too big a deal. And Doomwake, like you said, playing Doomwake is nice because it's kind of a similar effect in where you're trying to sweep your opponent's board. So you might even just be able to get away with playing Doomwake over either. It's yeah. also really good against Elves, and Doomwake's a card that seemingly has swung like the Death and Taxes matchup from being kind of 50-50 to really, really good. Yeah, and which is one of the reasons I I loved it, because I played it and was facing like Death and Taxes and Elves and just Doomwaking everybody, and it was real satisfying. I also wasn't playing it when um, Eldrazi were a thing, and, uh, you know, I think a 4-4 or a 5-5, you know, on the on the second or third turn swinging in, it's like, it's going to get some hits in before you can get your Doomwake engine going. Yeah, I guess the the Eldrazi is a little different, where mode is probably actually better than the other two. If you expect Eldrazi to be pretty heavy, then maybe mode is a card that you want to invest in, but I still think the other two are pretty fine options against Eldrazi, so... Yeah, agreed. What are the best ways to attack the deck, or near the deck, that are just kind of basically walking into the prison and they don't know what's going on. Like, what are some strong cards against this deck besides Harmonic Sliver? <laughs> Harmonic Sliver is probably the strongest. <laughs> I think stuff like uh, having taxing effects plus ports, like uh, Death and Taxes, is kind of interesting against the deck because when they wild growth their own land, a port is cutting them off of two mana instead of one, or maybe even three mana. That plus a Thalia and something else can be really, really difficult for them to deal with, so you can somehow tax their mana. Wasteland's not usually great against the deck because it runs so many basics, but like Ghost Quarter ports are pretty decent at attacking it. When you're a blue deck, it's really key on figuring out what role you need to take in a game and what to counter. I agree with all that. I think Rashad and Port is one of the, the best tools against the deck because it, it wants all of its mana in its main phase. So, you know, porting a land during upkeep is really strong. Any kind of uh, Ether Sworn Canonist, Spirit of the Labyrinth, any kind of that stuff is is pretty bad for the deck. The obviously, you know, you can play. There's a variety of destroy all enchantments cards that if if your meta is just packed full of enchantress and you want to just swing your dick in their faces, like there's certainly an easy way to hit <laughs> it out. In general, I think the keys to beating Enchantress are understanding how it works. You know, just sort of being able to, if you're a blue player, being able to sit back and have the discipline to sit back and and counter the correct spells. If you are not a blue player, either packing the right piece of hate or being able to destroy the, the correct thing, which can be tricky with Sterling Groves. Yeah, yeah, like even without groves, sometimes there's different three or four different enchantments and you have a decay in hand and hitting like a draw spell can or hitting like a presence or something to cut them off the drawing is really good a lot of the time, mm-hmm. but sometimes you just then can't capitalize on it and attack. You don't have the mana or something to pay for grasses. So it's just kind of dependent upon what the board state is a lot of the time. But I think if you're like a non-blue deck and you have thought seizes and stuff, you really want to hit the draw engine. Because yeah. without the draw engine, they can't keep up, basically, because all their cards are pieces of shit then. Yeah, that's that's the dirty secret of, Encham- of Enchantress is all your cards suck. It just happens <laughs> that when you land them in the right order, your deck seems really powerful. But all yeah. the cards kind of stink. Yeah, your cards all suck, but when they say draw two attached to all the effects, then they're a lot better. What are, what are we missing, Evan? Does that have a place to rise? Can it become a tier one deck? I think with like 
you know, I'm not, I mean, I don't want to make this into a banning unbanning, but I think Earthcraft being unbanned, if that ever actually happens, the deck could be pretty good in the meta. I think it's actually good right now, just the fact that people don't own the cards. As long as it's, you know, not a brainstorm deck and a lot of the cards are very limited to the deck, it's just mostly people just don't own the cards for the deck which is really what just keeps it down. There's another phenomenon, too. So Enchantress is, it's going to be good in any meta where combo is good, where people are not prepared for it and not packing rule of law effects or playing against a lot of taxing effects. If people aren't doing that sort of things, Enchantress can just go nuts and, and, and kill everything. The problem is that kind of meta is also very good for Storm. And Enchantress <laughs> is weak to Storm. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it, it's sort of in a strange place. I always kind of like to keep the deck built, and if I feel like, oh, this, this might be a good time to break it out, like I always do, but you just have to know, if you're playing Enchantress and your opponent starts uh, Cabal Ritualing, then like, you're, you're probably just toast. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like a 12-post with you, Evan. Like, a lot of decks just cannot beat 12-post. Like, it's not just you're favored, you're favored by a million miles. And I feel like Enchantress is like that a lot of the time, where decks just have no answers for anything you're doing. They can't interact at all, and you're just running away with every game. But if there's something like it's Natural Predator Storm, where they can just ignore everything you're doing and then just kill you, it's tough. It just feels like kind of a meta deck, but I feel like... It does have the tools to beat Storm. Like, if you really want, you can play, you know, ley line, White Ley Lines are good, and Agus of the Gods, I believe. I just bought one today. I think that's what he's called. He's 2-1, gives yeah. you X-proof, stuff like that. Like, Stony Silence is good against Storm. You can you can make your deck so that you can feasibly you beat a, Storm. You at least have a prayer. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you could also just simply ignore it and hope you don't play against it, so... Yeah. What, what other? I think Infect, Elves, and Storm are like the deck's three really not great matchups that I really just don't want to see because they're all very, very difficult to beat. Infect is just so fast. Your taxing effects don't matter because they can just pay your taxing effects and then their uh, pump spell is free anyway. And Storm, of course, kills you on turn one before you can interact. And Elves, it can just make so many dudes, and Reclamation Sage doesn't care about any of the things you're doing. So They make a lot of mana as well, enough so that they can win through, even if you have an Elephant Grass on board, like you're still not safe. I mean, it's certainly, yeah. you know, I would always play it because it's it's slowing them down, but it by no means makes you safe. Your best bet with Elves is to create a solitary lock or doom wake all their guys or something like that. Like they're, but they're definitely a deck that can beat you before you can get going. Yeah, yeah. Those are just like the three matchups I really just hate to see if I'm Enchantress. And I think the event that I I got ninth place in, I played against Elves twice and Infect twice. Did pretty well despite playing two matchups that I think are pretty bad. It's just real rough for you. Especially like if you don't understand the matchup. Like a lot of times, most games you want to establish your Enchantresses, then you start playing your enchantments to draw cards. But against those decks, sometimes you just want to try to establish a lock first and then just hope that you can draw well after that. Right. Boys like mint juleps. Boys like mint juleps. Boys like mint juleps. Boys like mint juleps. Mint juleps. Yeah, I'm, I'm more of a uh, uh, I'm more of a whiskey sour kind of guy. I'm not a whiskey sour kind of guy. I like beer. 
I, I'm a young man, so. So January 6th through the 8th, we have Louisville, Kentucky. Kentucky, Kentucky. Oh. Legacy GP. Is it Louisville like the bourbon capital of the United States? Yep. Kentucky Expo Center. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Isn't the yeah, uh, like, isn't the hot brown sandwich from from Kentucky? I don't like the sound of that. Oh, hot brown is delicious. It's uh, it's an open face sandwich with chicken, maybe some sort of meat. <laughs> I'm gonna have to look it up because I'm probably there's probably somebody out there on the internet that's screaming at me. But it has like meat and then like gravy on top of it. Huh. I, yeah, I don't know what that is, but I if we go, I'll try it. Uh, Kentucky hot brown sandwich. American Hot Sandwich, originally created at the Brown Hotel in Louisville, Kentucky, by Fred K. Schmidt in 1926. It is a variation of tradition Welsh rarebit and was one of two signature sandwiches created by chefs at the Brown Hotel shortly after its founding in 1923. It was created to serve as an alternative to ham and egg late-night suppers. So it's like an open-faced sandwich with uh, turkey and bacon with Mornay sauce, this says, says, which I thought was like gravy or something, and then it has like cheese. Uh, It was invented in 1923. So the plan is to drop from the event, get really drunk, and then at 2 a.m. go get a hot brown? I'm down for that. Yeah, I think that sounds like an excellent plan. What if they put it in a brown bag? (laughs) <laughs> you probably legally have to. I don't want people knowing your people are walking around eating hot browns all night. But then the the sauce is gonna seep out through the bag. I think your best so, bet is just to eat it. They try to give you yeah. a ticket. Fuck it, just keep eating. So uh, here in uh, the the great city of Atlanta, or I should say the metropolitan uh, area of Atlanta, we are blessed with the Dwarf House, which is, I don't know how to explain it for you Yankee folk, but if you're familiar with Chick-fil-A, there, there are some versions of the Chick-fil-A restaurant that have this thing called the Dwarf House, where attached to the Chick-fil-A, there is a small entrance that is is sized for a wee person to go through. And then inside the Chick-fil-A, like half of the restaurant, is a sit-down sort of restaurant called the Dwarf House. It's really strange. I don't understand it. But they have, it's and they serve, like, the same stuff you could get at Chick-fil-A, plus, like, hamburgers and stuff. And it's like diner food. One of the things they serve there is a hot brown at the Dwarf House. And just so you know... When you go through the drive-through of a Chick-fil-A that's attached to a dwarf house, you can order items off the dwarf house menu, even though they are not on the drive-through menu. So you can get a hot brown at a Chick-fil-A drive-through if it has a dwarf house attached to it. Oh, Just I'll pass. So <laughs> if you want to drive and eat an open-faced sandwich with gravy and cheese all over it. <laughs> that option is available to you in the great state of Georgia. I mean, I'm just going to pass on the thought of a hot brown from a fast food place in general. Just <laughs> It's just pretty fucking delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it probably kills more people than drunk drivers per year. So, <laughs> You guys thinking about going to Kentucky for this uh, legacy event? Um, I would like to. I think John, I was talking to Jansen, and he said it's about six, six and a half hour drive, I think. Yeah, it's a six that's and a half pretty, hour drive. Thrown by Star City Games. Yeah, that's pretty reasonable. I could definitely see going to that. I wouldn't mind. Yeah, I mean, that sounds awesome. I uh, it, It's hard for me to commit with my schedule. 
Yeah, it's in January, so it's a it's we got some time. But yeah, I'm definitely interested. I haven't played in Legacy GP since GP at the last GP Atlanta that had Legacy, which was 2011, 2012, one of those. So I'm I'm excited. I'm gonna definitely try to go to Kentucky at least. I don't know about the Super GP in Vegas, but yeah, I'm gonna go to that. Yeah, that seems pretty sick. I uh, likewise hard for me to commit, but man, it sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. So what is it? It's three GPs in one weekend at one venue. <laughs> yeah. So they seems like they. So there's there's a few interesting things about this, right? One, we have we have more GPs thrown by Wizards of the Coast, and we have two GPs now instead of three worldwide. So there Go is for legacies. Yeah, speaking on legacy, Wizards is thrown. There's more GPs now per year. They've added more. They have taken away from outside of the USA, so they don't have any legacy events with Wizards now. Yeah, people are not happy about that. I'd imagine. I mean, I, 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 I'm not saying that they shouldn't be. They definitely should be unhappy about that, but it's just I'm very surprised that at least Europe, they took away Asia, which I don't really know Asia's turnouts, but Europe traditionally has very good legacy turnouts as far as I know. So I guess the next interesting point to it is that they've moved it all to Vegas. So the legacy events on the 15th to the 16th, the standard event is 16th to the 17th, and the modern event is the 17th to the 18th, all in June. And this is all at the Las Vegas Convention Center <laughs> and thrown by Channel Fireball. And this is the same time frame that Modern Masters would be getting a GP in the same location. And there is no announcement of a Modern Masters GP. Oh, that just, I mean, it no, sounds Modern like... Modern Masters Limited GP. Right, uh, that's what I'm getting at, yeah. I mean, well, which they've had the last two times. Yeah. I believe so, and I believe it was one of their biggest events. The first one had, like, 6,000 or something, I think. Like, they had to just stop taking people. I don't remember if they did a second one or not. I, I couldn't, I really don't know if they did yeah, or not. The last one, so that one for the first one, they definitely have one for the second one. Yeah, I know they didn't do an Eternal Masters, which was kind of disappointing. Not that I would have attended, but it would have been interesting to see coverage-wise, at least. They saw an opportunity with that block in Las Vegas. It doesn't seem like they're moving their locations around too much, you know? And yeah. It seems like they're trying to kind of iron out a consistency here. They've kind of done the old switcheroo with Modern Masters, and just made this, like, all-out fucking magic event where they're just kind of premiering all the competitive formats. So I guess, like, the interesting thing to that, too, is Legacy is just kind of stapled on now with this event. So the two events are, you have the one that's just kind of a main event, the second one being this one amongst the other two, which is on, I believe, a Thursday and a Friday, which could be difficult for some people to get to, but I'm definitely going. Eternal Weekend, which is going to be in, I believe, September, uh, but it is going to be in Columbus. Is that um, next year's, right? Yeah, so 2017, they announced, which is going to be the North American Eternal Weekend is going to be September 23rd to the 24th in Columbus, Ohio, again. Go it's good that they've announced it now and not, you know, like this year, didn't they announce it? It's in October, and didn't they announce it like two months ago or something? So they announced it pretty soon to the event. Well, it's nice that they did it in advance this time. It is nice. But they, the weird thing is, is that, well, the big issue with Eternal Weekend 
this year, 2016, was that they had given the date so, well, Wizards of the Coast had given the date so late, I think kind of triggered them to go to a new location. Uh, yeah, yeah. Columbus. Well, the problem. And now they're not going back to Philly with or warning in time. So yeah. But it's weird they haven't gotten the results from Eternal Weekend and Columbus and the feedback, and they've already kind of attached to it. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting they chose Columbus too because I know that's a weekend Ohio State's playing a game. I don't remember who they're playing, but God, I can imagine just misery trying to book a place there right now because people definitely travel to see the Buckeyes play. So for 2016. Yeah, yeah, this year's. I know, like, it's like a Halloween, it's Halloween night, and it's a home game for Ohio State, and there's going to be a jillion people, and I guess it, it'll be quite the party, if you're into that, but. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think it's a benefit in some ways, just kind of latching on to what you're yeah. saying, you're not really playing, like, magic in the street, although that would be. <laughs> that would be sick, <laughs> like, around a bunch of, like, football fans, and, like, yeah. set up shop, and. Yeah, where my tusk case. Awesome. <laughs> Sounds like a dream to me. Get to play football and magic in the same weekend. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, so you can play magic inside, and then if you want to get wild, you can just go out into the streets, you know. And it's like that. Yeah. I mean, otherwise you're probably just going to be inside, like with your friends and seeing people, and maybe going out to a bar or whatever you do. It's not going to change your whole trip, you know. Yeah, yeah. From a party aspect, it's really, really sweet. It's just. From like a logistics standpoint of traffic and booking hotels and stuff, it's kind of yeah. a little questionable, and they probably should have done it earlier. You know, I don't know what kind of hoops they had to jump through to get this event going. So yeah, so shout out to Team Sirius who did a epic podcast on food options uh, in the Columbus area. You know, that's valuable op- valuable information. For- <laughs> Uh, a serious competitive magic players much appreciated yeah it's it's really good for the for the o three drop brackets they know where to go before everybody else gets there exactly <laughs> they're also going to have eternal weekend in Europe in two thousand and seventeen they announced so they didn't cut that out and that's going to be march thirty first to April second, which is cool because now there's actually a spread a pretty widespread between March and September, whereas in two thousand and sixteen this year. They're on the same week, which doesn't make a ton of sense. But, again, I think we mentioned this on another cast, maybe. Or maybe this was just a separate conversation. But it would be be cool if they had, like, the winner of each kind of come and battle, like, the vintage champ, legacy champ. Because now there's, you know, there's being two eternal weekends. There's, you know, USA champ, I guess, and European champ. They flew them into, like, PAX or something and had them battle. We should we should host it. That should be the Tusk Invitational. Yeah, that'd be pretty sick. <laughs> uh, can we announce the the uh, Tusk Invitational yet? We're not quite there. I don't think we. It's it's in it's in the works, but uh, I guess we can we can we can let forth a little teaser, right? Yeah, is that yeah. an announceable thing, or like, where is it? It's not an open, right? It's an no, actual. Oh uh, yeah, it's not. It's actually not an open. So we're gonna have to come up with a. It's a with a different name. We're gonna have to. In, we're gonna have to make invitations and send them to people. Yeah, it's gonna be an invitational event, and there's gonna be barbecue. I heard there's a rumor that there's gonna be an actual belt, as in a championship belt. So yeah, Ooh, I look forward to that. <laughs> Details yet to be finalized, but a location. Has been secured. I'll just say that. Is Brainstorm banned for the event? I don't think any any cards outside of the normal ban list should be banned. I think it would probably be unwise to play Brainstorm at a Tusk tournament. Yeah. Knowing <laughs> that 
the amount of thorn of amethyst that's probably in the room, but, you know, hey, you do you. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's going to be a great event, but, yeah, we'll cut into that on another cast once everything's ironed out. Yeah. I think uh, I think there will not be too much of a change. I think the only thing that we've discussed is allowing IE and CE in the vintage, since it's not going to be sanctioned. Yeah, no matter what, it's not sanctioned, so that's, that it's, seems yeah, fun to me. Yeah, definitely will be an unsanctioned event uh, because there will be uh, alcohol available. Yep, there will be. That's that. that like that's the best event then, yes. We will have a judge. I think Polk is planning on judging, right? Yep. Pay him in beer. He'll be all right. So we have a top eight to go over. Ooh, New Thalia. That's the card I just want to talk about all day long. All right, so we have a top eight list that's pretty cool. We're going to look over. Belgian Legacy Cup Trial 4, uh, 31 players, 30th of July. So we have Agrolome in first, and we have DNT in second. Uh, we have a Punishing Thing list third, and then we have Reanimator in fourth, Big Red in fifth. We have Miracles in sixth, Miracles in seventh, and Soldiers in eighth. So Soldiers. Soldiers. So obviously the decks we're interested in are soldiers. Soldiers. Yeah, um, it's a kind of like the soldier stompy list. Like Jansen plays, he's playing suppression fields as like one of their lock pieces. Chromox to kind of ramp him out to two mana, plus the ancient tombs and city of traitors. So it's trying to get two mana and three mana pretty early. Uh, Chalice of the Void for the normal, you know, stompy shells. It's just so powerful. And then instead of playing, you know, normal stuff like Blood Moons and such, it's playing White Shitty Men. <laughs> Seven Thalias. It's playing a bunch of pump things like Field Marshal and Captain of the Watch. Yeah. For that, uh, Field Marshal's like white, white, colorless, 2 2, first strike, give all other soldiers first strike and plus one, plus one, I think. The card's pretty sick. I'd love to just watch this deck and Eldrazi just beat each other down. <sighs> I think the dudes are kind of small, so Eldrazi can probably overrun them a little bit if they get a good start. But I think it's going to be really a very, it's going to be a lot draw dependent. If if the if the soldier deck can land both Thalias on the field, then the Eldrazi have a really hard time attacking. Just with all that first strike, it makes it really hard for them to get in profitably. Oh so, yeah, sick flavor. Yeah. I, w- I would like to play this deck. I um, A couple of years ago, I had somebody make me some foil Master P No Limit Soldier Tokens. Uh, and I think this would be like a perfect opportunity to, to bust those out. The Pretty Fly? It was uh, one of our friends that was not Pretty Fly, but I would go out on a limb and say they're Pretty Fly approved. Yeah, Pretty Fly design. Stick's got enlistment officer. That guy's awesome. He's the uh, white ringleader for soldiers. It's sweet. Yeah. I think just dropping the new Thalia off Chrome Mox in a Soul Land is just. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's exactly what everybody wants to do in Legacy right now. Oh, yeah. That might as well be a Blood Moon. You're dead when that happens. <laughs> like, that's. That like, fuck everything in Legacy. Yeah, yeah. of course. This, I mean, this cool. is it. I'm in love with that card right now, so. What I what I'm wondering is why this deck is only playing three of that card. You have some ways to cast it turn one, and it seems to be exactly what this deck wants to do. Like they obviously value old Thalia well enough to play four. I would be, you know, I mean, he has the fourth in the the sideboard. 
I'm not Tom Nevin. I do not know why he made the decisions that he did. I'm sure he has uh, great reasons. I just I would want to maximize the the possibility of getting that card out as early as possible. And then you're running a bunch of legendary creatures that can't play in multiples, and I don't know. I agree though. Like maximizing turn one Thalia is probably yeah. pretty good. I think you'd rather go four and three, four on the new, three on the old. Yeah. I'd say I just play four and four. It's like they either need to counter it or kill it. Like if it sticks, its its effect is so powerful that like having multiples is usually not bad. At least that's been my experience with Death and Taxes. Having drawing the second and third really aren't usually that bad. It's like yeah, I can't have multiples in play, but if I've got them in play, I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. And right. Yeah, the the one thing that I see, it plays, uh, so it has Suppression Field in this list, and that's been a pretty common card up to this point. It's a very powerful card, but the problem is it's a Nombo with, like, it's Caracas in here. And it's and I've seen Yeah, I've seen um, lists now, they want to play, like, Winter Orb, because Caracas is really good with the new Thalia, so having a bunch of Thalias and a bunch of Caracases that you can activate to return them in case of removal is really good. And then you also get to play Jite if you cut Suppression Field, and Jite with a bunch of First Strike creatures is really good, so you just play, like, two or three Jites. So that's, like, the one thing that I see that I've noticed. I've been reading the forums a little bit on that on this deck, and they, a lot of decks have been switching over to, like, Winter Orb is more of a Mana Denial card, and then playing a couple Jites and Caracas. Yeah. Opens, I, like, I, just not having Suppression Field opens up a lot of stuff for you. Yeah. I guess he can do that after board. What's that? Uh, so he's got two Winter Orbs and two Jits in the board. Oh, uh, okay. I didn't actually look at the board. Haven oh, Rift Watcher. So two Winter Orb, two two Jits, uh, three Thorns, Alia, two Rest in Peace, one Oblivion Ring, one Vanishing Light, and three Haven Rift Watcher. Ooh, the Rift Watcher so strong. Like the one of the big cards that a lot of people don't see very often is Preeminent Captain in that main deck. It's the one white, two colorless, two two first strike, maybe? Yeah. Uh, whenever Yeah, yeah. Whenever he attacks, you put a soldier from your hand into play. And he can be really insane. Like, you know, if you get a turn one Thalia, it's really good. If you get turn one him and they don't remove it, and you get to put in like a turn two captain of the watch, it's <laughs> it maybe unbeatable. Like you yeah. just have a lot of really powerful turn one and two plays in this deck. <laughs> yeah. I like it. It's got a lot of planes in it. I approve. Yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of white men. Ramaz. Um, <laughs> Ramaz is yeah, really good. Shout out doesn't get Yeah, he's a soldier, and he makes cat soldiers. Well, and there, there's the actual team, the cat warriors. Um, yeah, shout out to the cat warriors. Will Pro and Gavin. And that's it at this point. <laughs> Piper on the cat warriors. I heard they're taking uh, applications from the Florida area, though, so if there's any Florida... Listeners, uh, send your applications in to the uh, Cat Warriors. Yeah, how about this Punishing Thing deck that you posted here? Yeah, so let's talk about that deck. Third, huh? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool list. Uh, punishing Fire and, like, the card that I, I thought was going to be really good in the format just hasn't really seen all that much play Thing in the Ice. Yeah. Again, John Jansen played a deck similar to this, I believe, yeah. in the early days of yeah, it looks pretty similar to his list, I think. I know he was playing maybe another, an extra Snapcaster in his list. It looks pretty similar, and it's got one new card, the Bedlam Reveler. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's like a two mana, six, and then costs one less for each instant sorcery in your graveyard. 
and 3 4 with prowess. And when he comes into play, discard your hand, draw three, I think. What about that other new dude, flip card? It's like an eyeball reading a book. Oh, it's uh, it's like the mana dork, and it makes one yeah. for instant sorcery. All that guy is pretty interesting. Yeah, so all your instants and sorceries are one less, and then it's like delirium or whatever. Any flip? Yeah, yeah, I think he's he's pretty cool. I think he's more of like a because in Legacy, a lot of the spells either double colored like decays or cost one like brainstorm ponder and stuff bolts, swords. So I think he's better. I think he's like a modern card. I think Modern Storm might want him, actually. He makes mana for to cast spells, and then when he flips, he you can just go off, makes all your rituals, not be shitty. So I don't I don't know if he really has a home in Legacy, but he's an interesting card, and I think in... I think Punishing Fire, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And the problem with Punishing Fire is really the, the cutoff is you just don't have enough red mana. I do not know the name of it. Eyeball Man. Eyeball Man reading book. I'm I'm fine with calling it that. Okay, here he is. Curious Eyeball Man. One colorless, one blue. Tap to add one gold mana to your mana pool. Spend this mana only to cast an instant or sorcery spell. At the beginning of your upkeep, if there are three or more instant and or sorcery cards in your graveyard, transform... Curious Eyeball Man. He is 3-4 once he flips. He has prowess. Instant and sorcery spells you cast cost one less to cast. Like I said, I don't know if he has a home in Legacy or not, but he's pretty sweet. Yeah, I don't think he's really playable in Legacy, but I'll try him. Play him, play him with, like, factor fictions and uh, accumulated knowledges, maybe. Yeah, he's cool. Yeah, otherwise, this this thing in the ice deck is not really... It plays, like, V-Click, which is not a card that a lot of people are playing mainboard anymore. And it plays just a pile of counter magic. Uh, Spell Snares, pretty underplayed card, I think, in general right now. Counters, counterbalances, goifs, all that shit. Got Blood Moons in the sideboard. I'd hazard a guess this deck probably gets wins just because people have no idea how to how to play against it. Like... If you saw this deck list, you you kind of have an idea of its capabilities. But if if I play game one and my opponent grinds me out with punishing fires, and then game two I go in there and like I would walk right into a spell pierce or something like that, where I could easily play <laughs> around it. You know what I mean? Like he's, you just yeah, you just don't think you need to. Right, exactly. I mean, he's got... His spells are sort of all... Like, when's the last deck you saw that had Punishing Fire and Counter Magic and, like, Jace the Mind Sculptor and a card like Bedlam Reveler or something? You know what I mean? Like, it's just a little all over the place. And so it's... I know I've certainly lost to decks like that where I just, like... It took me long enough to figure out what was going on that... By that time, my opponent had already beaten me. Yeah, it's too late at the point that you figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, Thing in the Ice has been... I've played against it a couple times in Legacy now, and it's it's pretty good. I mean, I, I play Maverick, so it's especially good when you're returning a pile of creatures like mine, but I think just turning into it like a 7-8 is a clock, man. Yeah. Zero four, it goes to block, and then it becomes a freaking 7-8 and just fucking wrecks you. It's It's tough. Card's tough to beat if it flips. It is a horror. So is the Bedlam Reveler. That's the sweet uh, combo there. Oh, man. Bouncer Reveler. Why are not playing Cavern of Souls? They play Revokers, uh, big worms. Cavern of Horrors. <laughs> yeah, I want to play the Reveler with, like, land grants and stuff and make it a grow deck, but I'm terrible, so 
I just want Land Grant to be a good card. This is a cool top eight. We've got Agrolum, too. Um, pretty stock build. Yeah, Agrolum's a, a sweet deck. I have definitely played it in the past at a couple events, done pretty well. I enjoy the deck a lot, and I'm glad to see that it's taking a decent place in the metagame now. D&T player in second also went 4-3 and three with Thalia. Really? Morgan, you're a D&T player. How do you feel about the new Thalia and D&T? I, I think it's really good. I am... Um, Currently playing a build of the deck with four. Again, the same rationale. Like they kind of have to to counter it or kill it. So I don't mind drawing multiples. If it sticks, you're doing what you want to be doing. That deck suffers from every other deck that's in Legacy that does not have an island uh, because it does not have Brainstorm. So sometimes you draw planes, Caracas, 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 Thalia, 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 and you lose. And that is unfortunate. <laughs> the effect of the card has such a, a warping effect on the game that you. You always want one every game, so it, it really is worth, in my opinion, playing for. Yeah. Have you uh, have you played any games with her yet? I did play this last tournament, and I played four copies of it, and I put it on the stack or tried to vial it in exactly zero times. <laughs> I, I did not have an especially good performance that day. Yeah. Um, I kept some greedy hands that didn't work out for me. I made some mistakes from being rusty with the deck, but I do think I do think it's a very powerful card that you, it, you're going to have to convince me that it's not correct to play four. Really? Well, yeah. okay. So I guess my thoughts on it are that I mean, are you going four and four with both Thalias? Yeah. Okay. Because I definitely think that Young Thalia should be at four. I feel like the Vile at three. I just think there might be other things that you're trying to kill your opponent with. Her effect is so strong with something like Maverick and Soldier Stompy, where it's just, you're just knocking them over, basically. There's like, I think it's like turn one, vile, turn two, take it up, turn three, take it up, turn four, okay, I'm better now. I feel like, I feel like two or three is, might be a good number, but you know better than I, to be honest. But that's just my, what I'd assume. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, Mary Crusader might be putting in more work, I feel like, at that point in the game. Yeah, what did you cut, Morgan? I'm not not sure what you're playing. Like, what are you playing Thalia instead of? Like, because that was my problem with Maverick, is I'm trying to figure out what I want to cut for, like, if she's better than certain things. Nice thing with Stoneforge is that it gives you card advantage. Yeah, yeah. Well, you need a way way to, to win, and equipment is good at that. Yeah. So I'm... Let's see, I'm looking through my deck. I'm playing four Source of Plowshares, four Ether Vile, four Mother of Runes, four Small Thalia, uh, four Phyrexian Revoker, two Stoneforge Mystic, one Jit, one, one Batter Skull, one Ether Sworn Canonist, two Leon and Arbiter, four Flicker Wisp, four New Thalia, and two Mangara of Corridor. Wow, you're playing Arbiter, so you're pretty heavily on the uh, like mana denial plan then. Yeah. I can definitely see why New Thalia would be like a four of more than other things then. Yeah, yeah you cut, uh, so you cut down the Stoneforges and you cut Sophie. I don't know if you normally play it main board or... I have. Uh, my rationale was that the deck was just fine without Sophie before uh, True Name Nemesis, and people are not playing that stupid card right now as much, so uh, I'm willing to try playing the deck without it. Yeah, um, Sophie's also a lot worse when you don't have as many evasive threats like Sarah Avengers and stuff. Right. It doesn't trigger unless you actually hit them, so. Yeah. Or Sarah Angels. Or Sarah Angels. Sarah Angel. Or Sarah Angel, yes. So, Reanimator, 
fourth, Wade Stock list. We have Big Red. Ooh, Big Red. Andrew Heiser list. Jeff Oglin recently piloted. Oh, it's like the Godo Senor man. Senor Godo. Yeah, this is a sick list. Have you seen this list, Morgan? I'm looking at it right now. It does indeed look sick. The deck is horrifying. So many times I'm just like, all right, please don't have Seething Song and to kill me with worms. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I'm thinking. It's like Ancient Tomb, Lotus Petal, Seething Song, Through the Breach, World Spire Worm. Get fucked. Get fucked. <laughs> Game over. Yeah. <laughs> For us non-Force of Will players, we just lose. Yeah, I mean, I used to play, like, Matt used to just... Planes, ether vial, and he'd be like, "World spine worm." Yeah, like, <laughs> like, World spine worm hit you, hit you to five, make three five. Like you're just, it, it may as well be Grizzlebrand. You're just dead. Like yeah. you can't answer three five fives on turn two. So yeah, I mean, if you if you chain out like sneak attack off a seething song, and then you put out Grizzlebrand, and you just draw fourteen, and then you just fucking drop like a worm and Emrakul and fucking Godo off like oh like, yeah petals and the monkey, my yeah. monkeys, it's just fucking, you just, you just kill them so bad. Like, they're just so dead. Yeah, the deck is really good at overkilling the shit out of you. There's a place for this deck in Legacy. This looks like an exciting top eight. Moves into two Miracles decks. Uh, I'm not even bothering looking at the Miracles decks. Yeah. yeah. They have Miracles cards in Cool top eight. Much more interesting than our local top eight was in our quarterly. Well, not a lot of people played from Atlanta, which yeah, yeah, it cool. was a lot. Like it was a lot of outsiders. I mean, yeah, like if you and I, I don't go to Titan all the time, but I at least know the majority of the Titan crowd that aren't you know diehard Legacy players and hitting you know the win condition monthly. Uh, you're probably more in tune with their weekly crowd, but and then obviously the Giga crowd, so all those three weeklies. And it was just pretty much like seventy-five percent of the room was out of towners. Yeah, people I don't necessarily recognize. Seven of the eight were out of towners in our top eight. Yeah. So hey, that's, you know, that's that's awesome. I'm uh I'm I'm glad people like hey you made the trip and Yeah, that's that's definitely a plus. But it would be nice to have people locally come out because there was a lot of work put in and complaining heard. So. Yeah. And we gotta protect this house, so But all the people that come to our events are super cool. I think there's, like, good relationships between all of the Southeast legacy players, which I think kind of promotes tournaments amongst tournaments in this area. Yeah, speaking of uh, the win condition, like, they got their monthly event. I think the last one had, like, 30-ish people, 35 maybe. It was a decent turnout, and it was, like, a $20 buy-in, all of it, store credit paid out. It was, it was a really good event, really well run. The store's really nice. I like it a lot. They're doing another one the 20th of this month. Definitely, if you're in the area, come on, head out, and play some Magic. It's, it's a good time. Yeah, that was their first one, too, so that's a pretty strong showing for their first one. And there's a custom-made playmat. Oh, yeah, you made the playmat, right? Yeah, yeah, I made a great playmat. Um, a little much to explain, so maybe we'll attach a photo. Yeah, yeah, um, John P., Jansen, Trump. You have another mat coming out, so basically we have the winner... I don't know, this might interest people who are involved in throwing legacy stuff or trying to promote it, but we are doing a playmat, and the winner, basically, we, well, I'm going to make a playmat with this winner, so the picture that they submit and turn it into something that pushes their magic persona. Some text that shows that they are the legacy champion. And uh, Yeah, that was uh, Zeb won it, right? Yeah, so we had Zeb, he won with Death and Taxes. He gave me a tough one. I was salty. 
He's a man of school of Fox. Well, he deserves to win. I played him. He was playing Fox. I mean, when Wasteland was running Legacy Weeklies, I remember playing him there when he was running Fox. I don't even remember that. It's been all so long since they run events. Well, gentlemen, I I have an early morning. I, I believe I need to to bid this adieu. Cool. Yeah, you just want to wrap it up then, guys? Yeah, we can definitely wrap up this episode of Tusk Talk number nine on Enchantress. Yes. Cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, like I said, just uh, monthly coming up and Tusk Invitational maybe at some point. So uh, yeah. thanks, guys, for listening. Yeah, we'll try to put out some more podcast episodes. We kind of just do what we feel with this, and it's, you know, entertainment that we just like to make and going to try to make the effort to push out more podcasts. So we have a lot of members of Team Tusk. We are a group of legacy players that have common interests and base our actions on camaraderie and eating. Browns. Yes, eating exotic meats and carrying out our missions. <laughs> so we will be accessing multiple members who all have different backgrounds and different archetypes, and hopefully we can kind of do some episodes that specify in some sort of deck types and some sort of interesting topics that aren't talked about too much with a little bit of Tusk flavor. Play a barbecue. Play a barbecue. <laughs> yeah, we have done some barbecue uh, reviews, right? I know Zach and Sean talked about uh, brisket and pork at length. You want to give a shout-out to one or two barbecue places in Atlanta real quick? I'm not really huge on Atlanta barbecue. I do think that the wings at Fox Brothers are pretty good. In general, I think uh, Atlanta barbecue is uh, just all right. I can agree with that. I don't mind Fox Brothers either. I think they get slammed pretty hard. I don't think it's like the greatest barbecue place ever, but I think if you just want some just solid, play-it-safe barbecue... It's all right. Yeah, I'm not gonna badmouth any restaurants on the podcast. There, there are, but I, I think that there are several in the Atlanta area that are uh, sort of like people go on about like being really good that I think are entirely overrated. It was very gentleman of you. Yeah, just just not the forum for that. I'd rather praise up than put down. Right on, brother. Community barbecue isn't that bad. Yeah, that's true. That place is. All right. But, but uh, also, uh, for the uh, upcoming uh, Louisville event, I believe I understand that you can find mutton barbecue in uh, Kentucky. I don't know if that's a fixture of the Louisville area or not, but I haven't had any, so I'm going to have to eat some, some barbecue sheep at some point. Yeah, I'm in. Sick. Sick. <laughs>